Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 16, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony, Act 1, recorded November 1st, 2018, in New York City. So damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. The one size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out And the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember the walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now Let's start it up now Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Dear listeners, Marion Sulzberger Haskell was the board member for the New 42 for 22 years. And she passed away recently at the age of 100. I'm going to read just a little bit of not her... Um, official obituary but the um, note that the new 42 wrote about her marion being the extraordinary stalwart brave woman she was dared to take on the challenge of the forlorn blighted 42nd street in 1990 when so many others dared not to tread on the famous and even infamous block Out of her own brand of enlightened grit, coupled with her lifelong, steadfast dedication to the city and neighborhood she loved, Marion made certain that 42nd Street was reinvented for the 21st century, trusting that a theater for families mixed with the reactivation of the block's historic theaters and an exemplary rehearsal studio complex would lead the way to the street's revitalization. As always, she was right. For 22 years, informed by her keen grasp of the issues, along with her delightful quick wit, she courageously embraced and trusted the risky, bold decisions that led to the transformation of 42nd Street. We will miss her and celebrate her legacy for the next 100 years and beyond. So I knew Marion since obviously 2003, which is when I started working at the New Victory, um, but I didn't have a lot of interaction with her. Um, one of the best interactions that I did have with her was when she had stepped down and our new board chair um, stepped in. It was the same time frame as uh, when I became, uh, I was promoted to director. And... Um, my counterpart, Lindsay, um, and I were actually introduced to the board together. Um, and our president, Cora, was explaining all sorts of things in a way that I think confused folks. Um, the fact that we were going to run this uh, education department together. Lindsay had just got married and that we were like a married couple, but that we were going to be fantastic. Something like that. And there was a party after and um I think at that point Lindsay had had sort of like quietly ensconced um and left exit stage right and um uh Marion came up to me and very sweetly and and you know she was a lovely woman she said oh how long have you how long have you um uh, been together or something like that and I said oh you know just 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 this last month 
Um, but you know, I've worked here for two, since 2003. So it's, and we've worked together for so long that it's, it's really exciting that we're going to move this department forward. We're super excited. Thank you so much for your, um, belief in us, that sort of thing. She sort of nods and is like, Oh, okay, great. That's, that's wonderful that you've been working together for so long and that, you know, Oh, that's great. And then she sort of went off and then, um, there was like one or two other people who sort of were, you know, looking and um, chatting. And then Cora like busts out laughing out loud in the middle of this party. And she like, like makes a beeline towards me. She says, ah, oh, everybody thinks that you and Lindsay are married. <laughs> and so then I rethought about that conversation with Mary. She said, how long have you been together? Oh, that's what you, oh, oh no. (laughs) They were having a lot of concerns thinking that the two of us were married and we're going to run this department together. And, um, that was not the case, but uh, I like that they were, you, they had some concerns. They were curious. Um, but, uh, everything was cleared up. Anyway, Marion was a wonderful woman and I'm very happy to have known her for, the short amount of time that I have. Um, if you want to hear, uh, read her full obituary and her amazing, amazing life, um, you can find it in the New York Times. So this episode series is going to mark the end of season two. Um, and you're in for a great episode. Tom Cabanis is someone I've known for a few years, but when I first met him, I just felt like a complete camaraderie with him. I really enjoy talking to and dreaming and scheming with Thomas Um, and sitting down for this interview. I literally had no idea what kind of amazing stories he had to share. So please enjoy episode 16, act one, Thomas Cabanis, Striving for Harmony. Tom, Thomas, what would you prefer? Well, see, that's a tricky one, right? Already. Just because um, my name is Thomas. And so people who know me um, from my childhood Mm -hmm. and from college all call me Thomas. Mm -hmm. When I, it's interesting, it's all bound up in teaching artistry. Because when I got to the Lincoln Center Institute, I had a supervisor, a a boss, Mm -hmm. who insisted on calling me Tom. And I said to her, no, actually, my name is Thomas, and I tried it like two or three times, right? Mm-hmm. And after about the fourth time, I just gave up, huh. and she won. And suddenly, my name became Tom, and everybody in the arts education world knows me as Tom Cabanis, and so they, they find it strange when, you know, they meet someone who knows me from home, and, you know, who, who wrinkle, those people wrinkle their noses and say, Tom, who's that, you know? <laughs> so I, I feel like I have already, like... A different identity uh, you as know, a teaching artist. Uh, I'll tell you a little anecdote. Um, when I went to college, I went to SUNY Cortland, and um, the campus is uh, all the all the sort of uh, academic buildings are up the hill, and then all the dorms are down the hill. And I was a theater major, um, and uh, or not my freshman year, but but I was into theater, and right away in th- um, theater, I was Courtney, which is my name. But I was also rooming with somebody else who had the same name. Mm. And we ultimately made friends with the same people. And they kept getting confused or we were getting confused when somebody would call our name. We'd both answer. And so at some point on one of somebody's message board, I wrote Courtney Jean and she was Courtney Elizabeth. And so someone was like, well, CE doesn't sound right or Courtney Elizabeth doesn't sound right. So we'll call you CJ. The irony <laughs> is that uh, when I was a little one, I didn't like my name and I wanted to be called CJ and nobody would. Mm. So here, you know, I am five years old and nobody's calling me except for my mom would call me CJ. And for years and years and years, I was going by Courtney, which eventually I started to like. And then by freshman year, 18 years old, I'm being called CJ. But at the theater, I was being called <laughs> Courtney. So... One day after rehearsal, I I think it was a Friday or maybe it was a Saturday, um, a bunch of theater people go down to the Quarry Union, which is like, you know, the main food court. And there's often (laughs) there's um, 
um, some stragglers of folks who are hungry after a, an evening of partying. Um, and there were a couple of my friends who were down there and they're like, Hey, what's up CJ? And all the theater folk were like, who, what, what are you leading a double life? <laughs> so it all became this whole thing about the uphill, up the hill versus down the hill. Who are you? Okay. Um, so this, for this me, episode was... is called The Double Lives <laughs> of CJ and Tom. But that's interesting because for me, I actually, I equate I'm myself with bo- all, both of them. Right. So I am, I'm the same yeah. regardless of what you call me. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and I don't have a problem with it. But it's also interesting in my organization, I've been making sure that the J is very present. And because most people, when they met me here, it was Courtney Body. And, and I added I've always known that the J should, should be there, but I made it more official um, in recent years and then it got shortened to CJB. So now people are like, oh, CJB, CJB. And so somebody, I think, in an email said, said, said oh, me and CJB to like the president. And she was like, who is that? <laughs> and it immediately took me back to up the hill versus down the hill, Courtney nice. and CJ, CJB. Anyway, that's my story. Good. And that's your story. So what would you like me to call you? Because I want to call you what you prefer. You can call me Tom. It's totally fine. You sure? Yeah. Okay. So like Tom. like you, I have become accustomed. <laughs> so it's all right. Well, so, okay. So some nuggets that we've already heard, and I barely introduced you, <laughs> is that your name is Tom. Tom. Cabinus. Cabinus. And um, I, I just wanted to make sure. So Tom Cabinus. Uh, you and I met. Hmm. I think officially we met in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. Um, about two two years ago. The International but Teaching Artists Conference three mm-hmm. in Edinburgh, Scotland. That's right. Uh, but I knew I had heard your name and seen it in many places prior to that. So I was very excited to actually inter- interact with you. Um, and let's see. You you just said that you were working at Lincoln Center Institute, so I can't wait to hear all about that. Um, and uh, this idea of like names is interesting to me too so let's just start way back um at the beginning um i talked about being a kid and wanting to change my name um but i asked this of everybody who i interview um actually before i ask you this question can you just say like what what do you do now so right now i'm basically shuttling back and forth between the juilliard school where I am a professor in the music theory department, mm-hmm. and Carnegie Hall, where I'm doing arts education projects. So that's really, in terms of work, mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing. Great. I'm a composer, mm-hmm. so I'm always writing music, um, but those are the places where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working at the moment. That's great. You are my first musician there you go. to interview, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm branching out, um, at least artistically. <laughs> um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Really? Mm-hmm. What was it like to grow up there? Beautiful. Yeah? Yeah. Beautiful place. Um, yeah. Um, I was born in Charleston. My parents moved out to um, suburban Mount Pleasant, which is just north of the city over the Cooper River Bridge. And um, I went to, you know, went to public school um, in Mount Pleasant. And it's right near Sullivan's Island and the Isle of Palms. So I also could ride my bike to the beach, which was a nice, nice thing to be able to do. Once, mm-hmm. you know, once I got to be, you know, 12 or 13, I could, I could do that on my own. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a beautiful and complicated place to grow up in. Complicated. Um, well, how were the arts um, present within your, your childhood and did the complications come in, in get involved there or, or were they the complications, um, uh, the tension of that released because of the arts? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, when I started, um, doing anything, um, artistic, I suppose, you know, I was about 11 or 12. Prior to that, I really just was a kid who played baseball and football and, Charleston is one of those places where you can do sports year round. Mm. So I, I was on the, you know, I would sail in the summer and be on the swim team. And then as soon as the weather changed, I just did sports all the time. Um, but around 11 or 12, I got, you know, um, interested in music. And so started to do, I sang in 
couple of musical theater pieces. Um, I was in The King and I with the Charleston Opera Company. Oh. Um, and that really got me interested enough to take piano lessons and, you know, really sort of start working on musical things in earnest. Um, and, and Charleston what? was interesting in terms of the yeah. arts just because the truth was there wasn't a lot going on. It had a very storied past, a very interesting history. Mm-hmm. But things were, when I was growing up, were there, there, was, there was an opera company which did a couple of, like an operetta and a musical and an opera each year. There was, there was theater. Um, it all tended to be pretty precious. And, in, and at the Dock Street Theater, which again had a lot of history to it, but was basically an all-white theater, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so that, was, that felt... Um, uh, it felt kind of empty artistically, honestly, um, in the in the places you would normally look for the arts. Now the arts were happening in all kinds of interesting ways, in, in places outside of that. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so I, you know, around eleven or twelve is when I really sort of began singing and playing the piano, and you know. And, and what was the impetus for for starting? Well, you know, my parents. Um, were not musicians. They liked music, you know, well enough. My father was a lawyer. My mother was a poet, actually. Mm, mm. And, um, and so she had real sympathy for music, but she did not have sympathy for the um, music teacher that I sought out when I was very small. Um, when I was six, I really, I was, I begged for piano lessons. And so my parents, you know, rented a piano from the local piano company and and let me take lessons, but then the the teacher ended up being somewhere between sort of pedophile and and abuser, and he actually would hit me Ugh. in the lessons. And so my mother walked in on this one day, and she of course pulled me out and said that end of that. But then she also the piano went away, which I cried and cried because oh, the piano went no. away. And um and my my mother was so sort of traumatized by the whole thing. She was like, the, these musical people should just you know stay out of my son's life. So I didn't, so that sort of was, you know, the, the case until I was 11 or 12, and then I was able to, you know, beg again, and this time, you know, um, the piano stayed. Mm. But, um, yeah, the impetus for it was really a music teacher in um, middle school asked me if I wanted to try out for a musical that he was um, conducting, mm. And it was The King and I. And that was sort of what got me. I, you know, I auditioned for it. I got the part. I loved doing it. I just thought the whole thing was a hoot. Um, and I loved the people that I was hanging out with mm-hmm. in the theater. And they were all really interesting and older than I was. And that was interesting. So, I mean, it was really from probably from that experience, you know, that I knew I was I was hooked. I, I have two questions. Um What kind of kid were you? And And, you know, the trauma that you talk about with your mom... Um, you know, better understanding what was going on with the music teacher and then taking the piano away as a symbol, I guess, of of that bad experience. But ha- you were focused on the piano. What, did you feel, like, what was your response to how this, this music teacher was treating you? Oh, I didn't like him. <laughs> but I really, I didn't yeah. like him. But I, I still wanted to learn how to play the piano. I liked to play the piano. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I liked it. And so um, I was just very sad. I didn't, I don't think I really understood exactly what was going on. Um, This guy was the local organist at our church and he, you know, was sort of a jerk, but, um, but that almost didn't matter to me. I just wanted to play, you know, and it was like, well, couldn't you find me a better teacher? And the answer was (laughs) no, No. (laughs) you know, and um, so that's sort of, that's sort of where that was, Mm -hmm. you know, and I honestly, then I sort of forgot about it. Because I don't know, I was a kid, and I also yeah. did like, you know, sports and playing outside, and you know. So were you happy, uh, like a generally happy kid? Yeah, I was generally pretty happy. <laughs> That's, nice. <laughs> That's nice. And then this idea of theater coming into your life, and musical theater more specifically, yeah. and then it was like, it just re-engaged or re-triggered that right. joy. Right. And and then a couple years later, so even it wasn't long. It was I guess maybe I was thirteen. When they decided to do a musical to celebrate the um, bicentennial of the country, so this is 1976, with um, a composer from New York, 
uh, who was based in New York, and a writer from Charleston. And they, they did it for the Episcopalian Church. That was the Episcopalian mm-hmm. Church commissioned this piece, and it was called Song for a New Land. And it was roughly, I would say, based, you know, inspired by Bernstein's Mass. But it was an Anglican piece. So it was really more about the kind of like using the Episcopalian um, structure of service, mm. but in a similarly kind of irreverent way. And so I was, um, I got cast in that. And that was the first time I ever met a live composer. I just thought, I was like, I thought they were all dead, you know, all the composers. And mm. so I didn't understand, you know, and so I was like, this was really cool. So I'm meeting someone who's writing this music, we're singing it. Um, he was really great. It turned out he had a history with South Carolina. He was from South Carolina about, you know, at, at that time and, and still lives in New York. And um, in fact, he's, he wrote music for The Grinch That Stole Christmas, which is on, you know, Broadway or down at, uh, oh, wow. you know, um, Madison Square mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Garden Theater this, uh, this winter. And, um, and so Mel Marvin is his name. And Mel was amazing. He just let me, I said, I wanted to learn what he was doing. I wanted to help if I could. So there was, you know, there were orchestrations to copy and there were, you know, things to kind of paste together. And um, so I did that and that was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so then I wrote my first song and my mother, God bless her, mm-hmm. um, after I wrote the song, called Mel up and said, could I bring my son to you and could he play you his song this was after the show had finished and so it was a not a short drive it was like two hours away where he was Mm -hmm. and we um in Beaufort South Carolina and so we drove down there and you know I brought my I brought my song which you know I think I had on a just a sheet of paper and I didn't know how to notate it so it was just lyrics and you know but I could I could play it Mm -hmm. and sing it and he was great about it and he showed me a couple of things and you know was encouraging, mm. and um, and that was it. I was then. I just I have not looked back. I've been writing songs all the time since. And and do you have a a sort of theme in your in your songwriting, or is it, are you eclectic? Well, now I think I'm I'm eclectic. I I said a lot of different things, and I and I write lots of different kinds of songs mm-hmm. for different purposes and different functions. But the idea of being able to just you know, seeing how you feel mm-hmm. is uh, important. Um, I'm not very, I don't really have a, a lot of um, music history. So you mentioned a song that I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, uh, so the canon uh, of dead composers or living <laughs> composers, I just don't know. I really like the fact that I even know the Beatles is kind of amazing. Yeah, but you listen to the radio. You yeah, had, but I feel like there. Yeah, right? of course, of did, course. Right? But I feel like there's this other level that I that I find very challenging to get to in terms of music. Um, I, I mean, music uh, appreciation, music knowledge, music history, mm-hmm. um, even musical theater history. It, ta- it by the time I got to. Um, I think a junior in college, I was taking a musical theater seminar and there were all these pieces of, you know, different shows and other thing, uh, other pieces. And just, I didn't even know that Oklahoma was the first integrated musical, you know, like that's how un, uneducated I was in, in that world. And, um, uh, you know, as a kid, I mean, I guess. And then, um, in terms of music, my family was very into music. Um, my father played the guitar. Um, he sang in church. My mom would sing in church and also did other things. Um, and they were, um, yeah, like in choruses and that kind of thing. And we would listen to a lot of folk music or disco Mm. (laughs) and Lionel Richie and the Commodores, you know, those kinds of things. But like, I still didn't have, like, I would hear the music and it would be fun, but I wouldn't. I didn't understand, like for example, that rock and roll came from blues, right? Or um, that jazz was before blues, or you know, or R and B. You know, like I just don't. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, to be honest with you. So it's. I always find musicians like super fascinating because the the idea of being able to write your emotions, the idea of being able to compose music on any instrument uh, instrument to be able to express oneself. I find that just beautiful and amazing. And I, it's not a skill set that I, 
have in any capacity. Um, so that, I guess that's was, was what my question was before about, um, being eclectic or having a genre as a kid or when you started to write, when you didn't look back, right. Where did you start? Um, what kind of, um, you know, genres were you interested in at that point or, and, or type of, um, songs or lyrics or topics were you sort of exploring as a kid yeah, or a teenager? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, right when I, right when I began, um, playing the piano, I had a friend of mine, um, and we decided to make a duo for the talent show because there was a, you know, middle school talent show. And so we learned a Helen Reddy song. I know her. I know her. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I loved it. I mean, I, you know, sure. Um, all of the people that you mentioned, Earth, Wind and Fire, Helen Reddy, you know, and, and of course, and the Beatles, you know, I was definitely trying to sound out different kinds of Beatles songs. I was, uh, I, I had the Paul Simon songbook, mm. which went up to bridge over troubled water at that time. Wow. Right. Um, and so all the early stuff and, and I would sit, at the piano and just play every single song. Mm. Um, but when I was in the ninth grade, um, I heard, that's when I heard, I had just done that song for New Land in Charleston and I heard Bernstein's Mass. Um, <coughs> and it completely blew my mind. Um, and that opened up a whole world of other kinds of musics mm. that I didn't, like, I mean, like you, I, you know, it was like, uh, Oh, um, Bernstein is using, you know, quadraphonic atonal music. And then he's, then there's a song that sounds like it could be a Paul Simon song. And then there's actually a Paul Simon lyric in Bernstein's mass. So yeah, Paul Simon actually gave Leonard Bernstein a quatrain as a present, as a Christmas present one year. And he used it in the show. And so I, you know, I was like, Oh, Oh my gosh, there are all these other windows into, um, uh, into musical styles that I was not aware of. So that really opened the windows for me. But I think, you know, like a lot of people, I was, yeah, I was into, I was into rock and pop and, you know, oh, and, and someone had given me, right when I got interested in music, someone gave me the, uh, the original Andrew Lloyd Webber version of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which before it was, it was never done as a show. You know, it was an oratorio to begin with, that show. So it was just a children's chorus and some soloists. And it was done on stage as a concert piece. Oh, is that what an oratorio is? Yeah, basically, right? You have a chorus, some kind of an orchestra, and maybe some soloists, mm. right? And you sing a story. And so it was an oratorio. It was a rock oratorio. Huh. And it, was, it preceded Jesus Christ Superstar. So Jesus Christ Superstar actually... Um, you can hear some of the licks that end mm. up in Jesus Christ Superstar mm-hmm. in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Mm-hmm. And so I listened to that thing obsessively. I just thought it was so beautiful, the voices and, you know, the combination of rock and then yeah. the sound that, you know, sounded like an Anglican, it was an mm-hmm. Anglican choir that mm-hmm. actually I think his father directed. So it was like oh. Norman Weber or something like that, who was oh. the, I um, might be saying the wrong name, but it was it was his father who had a choir and then, he had written, you know, this mm-hmm. piece with Tim Rice. Wow. And, um, yeah. but it was, it was not a show. It was not a show. I, didn't, I mean, okay. So I do know things. I just don't know. I know them, I guess. But um, Joseph and the Amazing Technical, Technicolor Dreamcoat, I definitely have seen it multiple times. Sure. My dad loved that musical. Yeah, great show. And we would see it. We d- what I would see is a lot of high school musicals yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we'd come into the city, but I don't remember a ton of them for, I just had a switch to use brain, I guess. But, um, I can remember Donnie Osmond and yeah, in, I don't I know when I right. saw that, but I, I definitely that's right. saw <laughs> I think that's right. I think he was in it. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, wow, this is what a musical can be. Like, I didn't know musicals could be like, like, rocky like Mm -hmm. rock music like that right and how exciting is that um that's what i remember thinking watching it Um, i think that's what i saw i I think that's what they thought when they wrote it i'm sure because i didn't see a i don't think i saw a uh, a live staging of jesus christ superstar but i definitely saw a movie Mm -hmm. i remember thinking like this isn't musical theater right 
is it and my you know but i love the song i mean i just watched that live version on nbc and i i sometimes watch it on hulu because i love it it i think it's so hard it's like so hard and the idea of using rock music as a a way to explore this religious character's yeah. life is crazy and right. what what how revolutionary is that right. um for its time it still feels like that yeah what like 40 years later yeah well when so when i was 14 Mm-hmm. I wrote my first rock opera, which was called Damascus Road, and it was about the life of Saul and his um, you know, transformation on the road to Damascus. He has this vision and becomes Paul, St. Paul, of the Gospels. Oh. And so I was really interested in that, that moment of um, trans transformation mm-hmm. and so I wrote a rock musical about it very much you know in the in you know inspired by um, those albums that I had been obsessed with which included Joseph and then also Jesus Christ Superstar that's amazing and I got all my friends to do it and it sold out and we did it like you know like so 16 wait, you performances wrote, you wrote your your original musical right and then you produced it right <laughs> with your friends at 14 exactly amazing it was totally fun (laughs) and yeah and i'm still friends with some of those people and we're you know yeah yeah. that's great so so um so once you started once you graduated from high school where Mm -hmm. did you end up going to college did you go to college yeah so i went to um yale um and that's um one of the reasons i went was because i met people there who were um you know, musical theater nuts, Mm -hmm. people who were, you know, really, who could all, like, we could all do it. We could all sit at a piano and, and play, you know, songs from shows and, you know, you know, this one, you know, that Mm -hmm. one, you know? Um, So, yeah, so I went to, so I went from, from high school in Charleston to, um, to Yale and, and was there for four years in New Haven. And, and what was your experience at Yale? I, I, Yale drama? No, just Yale college. college. I just went to college, undergraduate there. What did you major in? I majored in music. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that was great about Yale was that um, there was no faculty supervision of any of the theater. Zero. Like, zero. Right? The whole point was, do it yourselves. You do, like, the Yale Dramat is still run by students. Mm -hmm. They run it. There are no... There's no, there are no parents. The parents are gone, right? The kids become the parents, and they produce it, wow. they direct it, they write it, they, you know. So it's, it's a really lively theatrical scene because the students know they can, they can do what they want, and um, the colleges have their own um, little dramatic organizations. So if you know, if you're not finding your way in like with the fancy people, the people who are kind of like you know at the tip top of the <laughs> theater, you mm. can do your own show in a squash court, huh. and that could be cool too, you know. So that was really great about Yale. I, that's the thing I loved in, in a way the most about it was the mm. fact that I mean I got to do Three Penny Opera. Uh, I was the musical director, and you know got to conduct the orchestra, and that's you know. <laughs> coach the singers and do that. And then I got to, um, I wrote music for the Caucasian chalk circle. It was a very Brechtian kind of uh, experience at, um, at Yale. Mm -hmm. And then I also wrote a, um, I wrote a commencement musical too and produced that. So, you know, I just was like one show after another. And, and, but so did you have, did you start having new influences in college that got you to creating these, Sure. Sure. I mean, a, a cup. A few things happened there. I mean, one was, yeah. I st- you know, I started taking actual music courses. You know, at at, at school, and so a, lots of new music opened up to me. The Bartok string quartets and Hans Werner Henze and his settings of folk songs, and I could go on and make a long no, list. I, I do see you. Yeah, is. yeah. <laughs> you're shaking your head, and I I understand. But but these were just new windows. You know, mm-hmm. new new kinds of music that I I didn't know about. Um, and of course I had to analyze Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn and Brahms and all that stuff too. So then I was learning more about that and the, the songs by Schubert and Schumann, I didn't know any of those. And so I was having to study those and, you know, write papers about them and all that kind of stuff. So all of that was really interesting. And then when I did that three penny opera, um, some of the folks at Yale saw it and recommended me to a conductor who was conducting in the music school in the opera department. And his name was John Mauchery, and um, he was um, 
really interesting guy doing many interesting projects. And he asked me if I wanted to be his assistant. He needed somebody over the summer to work on a project that was looking at the history, interestingly, of the American musical theater. Mm -hmm. And were there shows from the early years of the 20th century that um, the Kennedy Center might consider reviving? So they needed a research assistant to like, you know, basically cull through a lot of different kinds of shows, listen to them, make some recommendations. John, of course, was in charge of making those recommendations at the end of the day, but I got hired as his assistant to do that. And that was really interesting because it actually led to a Broadway revival of On Your Toes by Rogers and Hart. So Richard mm -hmm. Rogers of Oklahoma mm -hmm. fame, but with his earlier partner, Lorenz Hart, 1936, they write a show, and the choreographer is um, George Balanchine, and the director... <laughs> is George Abbott, who like directed the Marx Brothers Ooh. and you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So a very interesting team mm -hmm. of, um, of people. Ray Bolger was in it. And so, you know, famous tap dancer wow. and movie star and a really, a, a real Broadway hoofer too, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, in the Fred Astaire vein. And um, so that show um, was, was really fascinating because there was so much research to do about it, and I got to do a lot of it. One was that the orchestrator of the show was still alive, and he lived on 86th Street, and his name was Hans Spialik, and he was from Austria, and that so he an had amazing come <laughs> over to the United States and became an orchestrator for Gershwin and Jerome Kern and for Richard Rogers, and he was the orchestrator of the show, and so we wanted to do the original orchestrations in the pit that was the kind of the idea was to restore like what did it actually sound like in 1936 not what's the update of the update of mm, the update mm -hmm. you know um and so we uh, number one we had to find the music but then number two we we had we had to ask Hans about it so I spent a lot of time interviewing Hans Spialik and there are many many stories about that that I don't know if I should say on the you know, on the air as they <laughs> say but they are just so funny <laughs> they're just hysterical hysterical stories um so I got to meet him but then not only that George Abbott was still alive and he was 96 mm -hmm. and he directed the show and guess who else was still alive? George Balanchine. So he did the choreography. Oh, my God. So these guys... Now, you know, George Balanchine at that point, of course, was running New York City Ballet, and he was really kind of too busy to do anything but come over and look at it and, and work a little bit with the... He worked a little bit with the ballerina, um, but, you know, then just he kind of blessed it, you know. Mm -hmm. But he was there, and I got to meet him. I got to meet Balanchine, and I got, and I got to watch George Abbott rehearse scenes in that show which I will never forget I mean that was that blue and this is all while I'm in college That's I mean amazing. I'm literally taking the train back and forth between New Haven and New York and this is what I'm doing you know when I'm in the city and it was it blew my mind totally totally blew my mind and like, so it blew your mind I mean it's not I'm I, this is incredible <laughs> just incredible um and we're I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to ask, but like, I want to know what other people, either your contemporaries, your parents, your family, like, did they understand the magnitude of what you were? Did you understand the magnitude of what you were doing besides like living in it? You know what I mean? Yeah. My parents did not, <laughs> you know, um, they really didn't. My, um, my father knew that one of the things I was doing at college was studying German. Uh, that was the language that I took. Mm -hmm. And at some point along in the first couple of years, it became clear that if I wanted to, I could apply for a junior year abroad in Germany. Um, and this was all happening while, you know, that was sort of, you know, going on. So this is like sophomore year. And like, am I going to apply? Am I not going to apply? And mm -hmm. my father wrote me several passionate letters saying, you know, that this, what was I doing in New York with all this craziness that I should really, you know, this is an opportunity to go abroad, to study abroad, to, you know, really, you know, kind of perfect my German mm. and, you know, speak and, um, and, and what was, what, what, 
was I thinking? You know, because you can't make a living as a musician. And so mm. what this is all, you know, in the meantime, that as I'm saying, I'm in the rehearsal room with <laughs> Balanchine and Abbott right. and all that kind of stuff and, and completely inspired mm. by all of the things that I'm seeing and, and doing. Um, my mother was a little more sympathetic, but um, but then they were also getting a divorce at that time. And so it was a mess. Mm. It was just that was all a mess. And so my mother really couldn't, you know, attend to it. And so, yeah, they mostly we're just asking why wasn't I going to Germany right um I want to just pause for one second and tell you a little brief story when you mentioned um letters that your father wrote you a letter remember letters yeah remember that my dad used to write me letters too when I was in care packages but the letters they were like like handwritten in calligraphy Mm -hmm. sometimes or there'd be cards and I felt really special getting those I mean sometimes they were like angry letters because I made some I did something or others like sort of inspirational (laughs) things or asking me why are you doing this (laughs) um anyway I just made me think about all those letters um but yeah there's something there's something to that about like actually taking the time to write um to express yourself through words Mm -hmm. And take the time to write those out and what that means as opposed to what we have now, which is emails and other sort of digital mechanisms for communicating with each other. Anyway, yeah. side notes. Yeah, um, no, so true. But I, I think I think there's something to also just as like, like a, this, this burgeoning adulthood too of uh, now it's time for me to make choices and yes you can make your case just like as a kid you probably had to make your case to get your parents to agree to letting you do the musical or whatever it might be right and and um how do you help family or and or friends understand that while from your perspective this doesn't seem worthwhile there's so much happening i mean just the people that you are getting to work with you know, like, how did you help them understand? Or did you? Were you able to help them understand? Or did you end up going on the abroad study abroad? I didn't go. Yeah. So how did you have that conversation with them? I, I just said I wasn't going. <laughs> and it wasn't easy. And mm-hmm. like I said, it was in the middle of familial, lot, yeah. familial upheaval, too. Mm-hmm. So, But I just said I have to do what I want to do. And I'm, this is what I'm going to pursue. And so, sorry, Dad, you know, basically. And, it, you know, he yeah. wasn't particularly happy, but mm-hmm. he also, you know, I mean, look, you know, he, they supported me through college. I, I, you know, I can only be grateful. Of course. For all of that, I, you know, but, yeah. but at the same time, I, yeah, I, you know, I tried to explain it to them, but it was really tricky because um, they were, they were concerned about my, the, the long-term mm-hmm. picture and mm-hmm. whether I'd be able to support myself. And were so. you concerned? No, no, right? No, I should should have been more concerned yeah. than I was, but I wasn't at the time. Well, I, I just know. had whatever blinders or the the you know um, the arrogance of youth or I don't know. But I wasn't right? worried. Yeah. I didn't. I somehow was not worried. I thought it would work out. Oh, it's. I find. I mean, I obviously we went to two different. You had two different college experiences, but I just remember. Um, you know, having lots of different kinds of conversations with my, my, mostly my dad, my mom sort of was along for the ride, whatever I wanted to do. And they were, they were quite supportive. So originally when I uh, went to college, I was a communications major and I changed my major in sophomore year. Um, I did it without telling them. And then I told them and my dad sort of was like probing me and asking me like, why, why, why? He wasn't against it. He just wanted to understand why I made that choice. And when I gave him the different arguments, um, he said, okay, that's fine. But like, if you're making this choice because you really want to make it into a career, then I I urge you to really make sure that this does ultimately become a career choice and not just because you're enjoying yourself. Um, But he wasn't, he didn't seem worried Mm -hmm. so much about you can't make a career out of this. Um, And then, you know, they would come up, you know, often to see me in my plays. And and later he said something along the lines of, you know, when I knew that you were, you were going to be okay. And I knew you were really an actor is when I saw you in a Shakespeare play. I was Helena in, in a Midsummer Night's Dream and he was a huge Shakespeare buff. He's like the way that you delivered lines, the way that you interpreted them, I had never heard them. And I know this place inside and out. And it was just so uh, uh, impressive that, that you had built this character and I saw everything and I, I really, uh, you know, fully understood. And I felt 
like, wow, she, you know, she's really going to do this mm-hmm. and how, how great that we are supporting her. <laughs> but there's, you know, and, and, you know, lots of other things are going on in the home life. But for, from my perspective, you know, so much of what I was doing because both my parents um, were pretty highly educated, but came from pretty poor backgrounds and moved into this new sort of um, uh, economic and socioeconomic uh, class and so there was a lot of pressure um from for me to be able to produce and be but there was this other kind of support system that was happening they did pay for college i didn't have to take out i didn't have to take out loans um so there and was a, a there was a, it, it makes yeah. a big difference but i was also given the ultimatum like do it in four years uh, otherwise you do have to pay for it so that there was that and so when i came to graduating i was sort of in that same place where i remember being at an event the night before uh graduation where we were it was the multicultural club and they were sort of giving us awards and there were apparently two girls in front of us who were talking about how they were scared and later my dad asked me like are you scared and i was like no i'm ready i'm ready i have no idea what i'm gonna do but i'm i'm ready to take that next step hmm. anyway so, nice. Nice. so you know, there's something to that, like, familiar support that you get, but there was also a lot of me finding or making my own way. Um, and I don't know, and it just makes me think about the young people that we work with and how they don't necessarily have the same kinds of supports, um, whether it's financial or just even just being there and understanding that you're making these different kinds of choices than I would be, or I had the capability of making. Um, and what does that mean and how does that fit into, um, uh, you know, being able to take that leap or like my parents coming from one economic status to another, because it was through education that they were able to do that, you know? Yeah. Anyway. I can't believe this. This is pretty like, I want to hear more. I really want to hear a story. Well, you know, the other thing that was going on during school was, you know, so John Mouchery, this conductor said, I mm-hmm. want you to come and, you know, work for me for the summer. And, and for me at that moment, it was like, do I go back to Charleston where um, a friend of mine and I had a, um, a pool cleaning company and that's what it was. It was a great job. We made a lot of money nice. doing it. We actually, I mean, at a certain point, I was like, why am I going to school? Like, this is amazing. We're making so much money cleaning pools. <laughs> um, but it was either to go back and make some money cleaning pools again, or I would go to New York and and work for John. And and even then, my parents were like, come home, make money, be at home, and you know, all that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, no, no. I think I, I, think I have to go to New York um, to do this. And so as a way of kind of persuading me or sealing the deal, um, John said, you know, I'm going to New York tonight to hear the New York Philharmonic. Want to go? This was like, you know, regular school day. It was like a Thursday or mm-hmm. something. And so um, I jumped in the car and with him and we drove to New York City. We basically drive right into Lincoln Center, you know, where <laughs> he parks the car and we, mm-hmm. we um, are going to hear the Enigma Variations by Elgar, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. And before the concert, we, because he is friends with Leonard Bernstein, we walk up to his dressing room. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding. This is my first time in New, I've been to New York City before, but only like driving through. And so like, here, my first time going into New York City and suddenly I'm at Avery Fisher Hall outside of Leonard Bernstein's dressing room hearing this amazing piano being played from inside the the room and we're kind of waiting for a moment when we can go in and finally his assistant you know knocks on the door opens it up there's Leonard Bernstein with a glass of scotch on the piano and a cigarette in his he's got a sink cigarette in his mouth and his hand and somehow he's continuing to play the bombs <laughs> while he's smoking I couldn't figure it out like well, how did he not miss a note like you know but he just kept smoking and somehow the hand, it would flick in between a chord and then he'd be back on it and so on so he finishes this piece by Brahms and um and and then I'm you know stop and he says hello to John and they hug or whatever and then I'm introduced and I say hello and then zoom, we like we're basically like he's being taken down to the stage to go on so we're late to our seats so we rush out there and and then we hear this amazing concert and that led to that summer working on Candide at the New York City Opera and so one of the things I did was additional orchestrations for um, that 
that piece. And so I, you know, and then, and then I got to go and show those orchestrations with John to, you know, to Leonard Bernstein's, to his apartment. And, you know, I mean, all this stuff is going on. It's like, you know, he was my idol that I, you know, just, you know, four years, five years before I'd been in the ninth grade listening to Bernstein's mass and thinking this is, you know, blowing open my world. So, and there I was kind of hanging out with him. So what was he like? He was amazing. He was amazing. And I did, I actually worked on two different operas of his. I worked on Candide and then I worked on A Quiet Place. And um, yeah, he, he, I watched him do all kinds of things, um, rehearsing, writing. Um, I went to his house up in Fairfield. He, he was very temperamental. He was at a point in his life where things were pretty tragic. His wife had died. Mm -hmm. It was after he had come out as being bisexual and then then his wife dies of cancer and he was a mess is the truth right mm -hmm. i mean when i met him he personally emotionally you know a wreck but every bit leonard bernstein and talented and amazing and you know inspirational on the podium and um and he was very kind he was very kind mm -hmm. and um you know my i i um, I'm still married to my my girlfriend at the time, right, yeah. uh, Deborah. And whenever we would come around together, he always remembered her name. He always, you know, asked about her and remembered details of things from the last time mm. that you know um, he'd seen her. So I don't know. There was so many ways he was able to really kind of zero in on you and who you were and what you wanted. And he could also get really really furious with you if he you did something that disappointed him mm -hmm. and I found that out too um but you know he was so he was he was amazing I you know I mean it, he was amazing that's really remarkable yeah really remarkable so I don't even know where to go next with that I mean well I, I was I was hoping you were gonna um tell us some stories about um um Balanchine Balanchine yeah. yeah, you know, <laughs> I have more stories about Abbott than about Balanchine, but in that in the, George Balanchine came, he, um, the, the ballerina was Natalia Makarova, um, who was a pretty famous Russian ballerina, mm -hmm. and the, originally that part had been done by Vera Zarina, um, another Russian, you know, ballerina mm -hmm. from the 30s, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so he worked with, with Makarova, and... Um, and you could see what one of the things you could definitely see, even um, from the sidelines, was the intimacy with which Balanchine would work with those kinds of his lead dancers. Mm -hmm. um, and he wouldn't have to say much. Um, and of course, he was saying it in Russian to her, mm -hmm. but he wouldn't have to say very much, and you would immediately see some you know, huge difference mm -hmm. in the way the person was, was dancing. So I, I guess for, and, you know, from my point of view, it was a little bit of just a little bit of like fairy dust or magic coming into the rehearsal hall and then leaving again, right. you know, but he was very sweet. He was a very nice and gentle man in person. That's, that's nice to hear. Um, but George Abbott is the one, I guess I feel like I learned the most from mm -hmm. because I watched him rehearse comedy mm. and comic timing and and I remember this one particular scene where the scene is happening downstage, right, between two actors, and it's there, there's some little dialogue that's going on. Mm -hmm. And upstage, because it's ha taking place in a, in a dance rehearsal hall, a dancer walks across the back of the, you know, um, the back wall of the theater, just walks across, and at a certain point, he, I think it was a he, picks up like a towel or something and sort of snaps it over his arm and then walks on. So the first time they do the scene, this is going on, there's a banter back and forth, the guy kind of gets the towel, but in a kind of naturalistic, you know, believable way, and he gets the towel and then he walks on and walks uh, off. And, um, and George Abbott says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. This is a rhythm. Actor says the line. Actor says the line. Actor says the line, snap of the towel, joke, funny. 
And they had to rehearse this little thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they must have done it for 10 minutes trying to get, and he would, he was literally, he's like, actress is the line. I, and, and it was like a, mu- it was a musical rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And, but then, you know, as soon as we went into the theater and we had an audience, that line, which when we were rehearsing it, I thought like, whatever, you know, it's okay, but it's kind of, you know, not so funny, was funny. He, this guy, he was 96, but boy, did he know what he was doing about rhythm mm-hmm. and, and also about the incompleteness of that, of like, you know, they were going to do one part of it, but the audience was going to provide the other. And he knew it. He was wow. confident about how he was going to get this laugh and he did it. That's and amazing. I was like, I've never forgotten that. Right. Cause when I'm writing music, th- that's what you're doing too, right? Mm-hmm. Is you're writing things, but also there's an audience on the other side too. Mm-hmm. So it's not all just about what you put into the piece. It's also how about how people respond to it. Mm-hmm. And do you give them the time that they need to absorb things and, and also what's funny because music can be funny too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, anyway, yeah, George Abbott was amazing. So it was like another <laughs> being a part of this project was like another, college experience like totally right and just its own education yeah Yeah. and what happened so this was when you were when what year like sophomore year sophomore sophomore and junior year yeah wow that's crazy and what ended up happening with the production how long did it run and um you you, which one you're talking about oh sorry um you mean bernstein's opera or uh no, sorry. The 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 one that you did with oh, George Abbott. Oh, on your toes. Yeah, I that was in toes. 1983, and it it got um, you know, medium reviews. It ran a little while though, mm-hmm. um, and everybody said the music was amazing and the dancing was terrific. But it is an old musical, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, 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 it's kind of dated mm-hmm. in a certain way. Um, but there's a really wonderful cast album. From 1983, if you want to listen Ooh, to it, there's there are yeah. great great pieces on your toes, mm-hmm. and there, I I still, you know, listen back to that uh, that cast album with great you know pride and and joy. So as, sh- as yeah. you should. Yeah. And then working with Leonard Bernstein, that was a different. That was def- yes, I know that that overlapping. Was, that was at the, this was all you know, happening kind oh. of at the same time, honestly, because then you know because uh, Candide was actually 82, and then A Quiet Place was 84. And 85. So this was all happening kind of as I was, you know, finishing up college and then after college, too. <laughs> just, okay, yeah. It's just unbelievable. I had no idea. I can't. Yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm these are true stories. Thrilled about hearing these kinds of stories. I, I always love. Uh, it, like I said, I didn't I, I didn't actually say this before, but I didn't do a ton of theater in in um high school and I didn't have that sort of deeper understanding of the history at all in fact I've never heard of these <laughs> um particular pieces but uh I, I, indeed I'd have but um uh I just remember when I went to college and again it was a different kind of experience but I just remember um uh, the the way that people tell stories and the sort of um name dropping so if you want to call it that, but the, the, the names that would come out and I was always like, I don't know who that is. So I'd have to look them up or yeah, yeah, ask yeah. other people. And yeah. so some of the stories were sort of lost on me, but I, what I love and still love is just sort of the, the way that people can talk about, um, these sort of historic, like, you know, pretty massive people in the field. Um, and, um, that, that must have felt larger than life. But then you're saying, you know, Lennon Bernstein, he was really nice. It's just a nice person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's this, the legend and then there's the person. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always found that really fascinating to, to think about like, who are you as if, who are you and not are you, but are you the, you know, like you said, there's all this tragedy that was going on in his life. And yet he was this massively, talented person and able to produce and play and and share his craft with the world you know i mean that's there's a duality there that 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 i'm i'm interested in but i'm also as somebody who's also an artist but not necessarily at that level um i can see where it's kind of like the courtney and the cj Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like these are they're all that's all of you but some people only see the one side of you. Does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I find I just find that fascinating. 
Thank you for listening to episode 16, Act 1 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Thomas Cabanis Striving for Harmony. Join us next time for Act 2. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Brandon Hutchinson is the media arts coordinator. And Jerry Johnson Smalls is the communications intern. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. And now on Instagram at teachingartistry with CJB. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now.